in the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John, John continues his account of the crucifixion. And we will pick it up at verse 31. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. And the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. And he who has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. As I said last week, tonight, I'm going to describe to you the physiological effects of the crucifixion. I do this for two reasons. First of all, we must never forget the price that was paid for the gift that we have. But secondly, I do it so that as we come to look at Mary, we do not wonder so much why she didn't instantly recognize Jesus. Why she was not immediately looking for the fulfillment of Scripture. Because once you have seen someone crucified for hours, you do not look for that body to ever function again. I will not go into great detail with you tonight in deference to people like my wife who really can't stand that graphic in nature. And if I went into that kind of detail, you wouldn't be able to think about anything else. But I do want to explain to you some of the aspects of the effects of crucifixion because it helps us understand what Jesus went through and understand Scripture better. The account that I'm giving you, the details, don't come from religious writings. They come from the most prestigious medical journal in America. Uh, New England Journal of Medicine, several years ago, they had a description of what happens in crucifixion, what happened with the crucifixion of Christ. And so, let me proceed. There was an adoption of this custom, really from the exploits of Alexander the Great. The Middle East really knew nothing of this custom until Alexander the Great conquered Persia. And they practiced this in Persia, and then it was brought back to Carthage, and the Romans learned it from the Carthaginians. In the account that the scripture gives us, the criminal is to carry his own cross to the place of death. He cannot carry the whole cross. The whole cross would weigh in excess of 300 pounds. But they strap the crossbar to him. They tie his arms, and he carries that, which weighs probably 100 pounds or so, on his back. 
And as he is proceeding, there's a soldier in front of him holding a sign with both his name and his crime. We learned last week that the sign that went before Jesus was written in three languages, and it said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. We know from the other accounts of Scripture that Jesus couldn't make it all the way. It's not because he was naturally weak. It's because he was scourged to such a degree that he was weak from the loss of blood. The instrument of scourging back then was a whip with a wooden handle and long thongs of leather. But on the end of those thongs were tied metal balls and sharp bits of bone so that with each lash the skin was cut and then the subcutaneous muscle. The body was literally in ribbons and the blood loss was great. By the time he got to the place of death, they nailed that crossbar to its vertical partner and placed that sign above his head. And then they nailed his hands. Now, they probably did not nail this part of the hands because those hands and those feet had to support the full weight of the body on the cross. And the bones of these hands are not sturdy enough to do that. They probably nailed it through here, which is still considered a part of the hands. You can see that artery that goes through there. You can imagine the loss of blood. You cannot see the medial nerve. You cannot imagine the searing pain. But his hands were stretched out and his feet were nailed with his legs crooked just a bit so that he might lift himself up to breathe. You see, people didn't die on the cross because they bled to death or because they had a heart attack usually. They suffocated to death. With the arms extended to that degree and the rib cage extended to that degree, those intercostal muscles, those muscles between the ribs were paralyzed and could not contract. You could take air in, but you couldn't breathe out very well. Most of the work had to be done by the diaphragm. And so to get any kind of breath, you had to lift yourself up. And as you lifted yourself up, your back scraped against the wood and the bleeding began again. And the pain was excruciating. We get that word from the cross. Ex means out of, and cruciate comes from crucifixion. Excruciating. I want you to know that every word from the cross cost Jesus a great deal of pain. Because words are spoken by exhaling. And so with every word, he had to pull himself up in order to speak, he died in a very short time. 
crucifixion could take, the death could take, anywhere from three hours to three to four days. But he was in such a weakened state, he died immediately, so that when they came to break the legs, because they wanted them to die before the Sabbath, and that's how you got somebody to die. You broke his legs so that he couldn't lift himself up anymore to breathe. And he suffocated in a very short period of time. When they came, he was dead. They did pierce his side. The conjecture here is that the spear went into the pericardial sac. Because when you're in distress, there's fluid that gathers around the heart. And so the blood and water. But St. Augustine said it so much more beautifully when he said, those were our sacraments that flowed from his side. The water for the baptism, the blood for the communion. Jesus paid a great deal for our forgiveness. And then they buried him. It says in verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Christ, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. How many in here are secret disciples? You really don't want to say very much about it because you'll be tagged as one of them. And sometimes it's not until there's a great emergency that you come out and say, no, I am his disciple. Sometimes it takes something that evokes great compassion before you can say, you know, I don't care who knows. I am a disciple. And so Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked, that Pilate, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, and he came, therefore, and took away his body. And Nicodemus came also, another secret disciple who had first come to him by night bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about a hundred pounds in weight lots of sweet smelling ointment and so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices as the burial custom of the Jews now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Now, the guess here is that that was Joseph's tomb. We know from the other Gospels that Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. And only the rich could afford a tomb like this. These tombs were, were carved out of the side of mountains. They, they, were, they had ledges carved in them. And, and only a rich man could afford that great stone that was rolled over the mouth of the tomb. Grave robbing was pervasive in those days. And so you had to have that great stone rolled over. Only a rich man could afford that. Our hunch is that Joseph said, let him have my tomb. But, as it is with anything you give Jesus, he returns it in better shape than it was. He doesn't use it all that long, and when it comes back to you, it is marked with eternal interest. I can't help but think that if Joseph lived for many years, 
that he was laying on his deathbed one day, and he was thinking, I'm going to die, but I'm going to go and lay where Jesus laid, and I'm going to be in there about as long as Jesus was. I can't help but think that that was his gift. Therefore, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now we're going to turn a giant corner. You see, usually you only hear the scripture that I just read on Good Friday, and you only hear the scripture that I'm about to read on Easter. They are hardly ever put together. As a matter of fact, in 30 years of preaching, I have never put these together. And I wonder why they go together. Someone once said, you can't possibly realize how good the good news is until you've understood how bad the bad news was. And so let's read about the good news. Because we are much in the same position as Mary. We can't get it through our heads that the news is good and that we can now live according to the good news. We have in our life suffered so much pain and so much disappointment that we are transfixed in those scenes and we are not really looking to see God fulfill his promise. And so let's go ahead with this because that is our life, the life of grace and promise. It says this, now on the first day of the week, the reason, of course, that we worship on Sunday is that it is the day of resurrection. When people say, why don't you worship on the Sabbath? You say, because we're always celebrating the resurrection of Christ. That's why we are who we are. Now, we also worship on the Sabbath here and hopefully every other day of the week. But on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Let me just parenthetically say here that the stone was rolled away not so that Jesus could get out, but so that we could see in. There were special and remarkable qualities about this resurrection body. It very obviously was a physical body, but there were extra qualities. And anyone that doesn't need a door opened before he can walk into a room doesn't need a stone rolled away before he can exit a tomb. The stone being rolled away was not for the sake of Jesus. It was for our sake. Anytime you sense a huge change in your life, it's not usually for God's sake. It's for yours so that you can see him move. It says this. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. It is the natural human quality whenever there's a huge change to have a suspicion that somebody's up to something. Why is not our first suspicion that God is up to something and that this is for good? No, our first suspicion is always they have done it. We never quite know who they are, but we're sure they have victimized us. No. God is arranging things for our future. Read on. It says, And Peter therefore went to the tomb, 
and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb, and the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first, and stopping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter therefore also came following him and entered the tomb and beheld the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Now I want you to note two things here. First of all, I want you to know that the gospel writer is communicating that this body was not stolen. How do you know? Anybody back then would have known it from the fact that the linen wrappings were still there. Who in his right mind would unwrap a dead corpse and steal a naked body? The Jews wouldn't do that. They would certainly be defiled. The Gentiles wouldn't do it. They'd be grossed out. You would never do that. You would never unwrap a body so that you could steal it. And this was the signal. The body was not stolen. But there was another signal. When you read this, you read this language that's so beautiful. And it says, and the wrappings were lying there. And the, and the, and the wording is, the, the, the arrangement of the text is, still in its fold. What that means is that that part that went around Jesus at one moment was covering a body and at another moment was not. And it just laid down in the folds that it had. Except for the face napkin, which was rolled up and neatly put into place. What does that mean? For you mothers, that means Jesus tidied his room before he left. (laughs) And you can tell your children that, or your husband, as it is needed. (laughs) But the other thing that it means is this. This was not done in a hurry. This was not a panic thing. This was not a rushed thing. This was the orderly, Fulfilling of the providence of God. Neatly done. Now I want you to see the two very different reactions of the men and the woman. It says this. How much time I got? I ain't got much time. It says this. So the other disciple, verse 8, who had first come to the tomb, entered then also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Now again, note two things here. First of all, note this, that you don't have to understand in order to believe. As a matter of fact, St. Augustine said you have to believe in order to understand. You will never get to belief by your understanding. No, you get to understanding by your belief. They understood. They, did, they, they believed they didn't understand yet. They, they are the disciple. And so what did they do? Typical men. They went home. <laughs> now, I used to think this was because of the difference between men and women. You know, physiologically, there's a difference in our corpus callosum. 
That's that, that's that, that's that, that, that tissue that, that combines the hemispheres of our brains. Women have a much larger one. And women need to connect everything. Everything's in connection. And so a woman is not going to be satisfied until usually uh, something's connected. But a man is categorical in his thinking. Okay, raised from the dead. Think I'll go home. <laughs> Men can just forget about stuff until it comes up again. I mean, literally, he's not thinking about it. Nuts time, nothing I can do here. Now, part of that, I think, is through categorization. Part of it's through distraction because of confusion. I read an interesting book in the last couple of weeks that, that had some of, the, some of the experiments for Sesame Street, um, this, this wonderful uh, teaching uh, program for children. Uh, a woman named Cooney, brilliant woman, visionary, created this so that underprivileged children could have a head start at school. And, and anybody who knows anything about education knows that a talking box is not a good instrument for education. Education comes bef because you have tailored the, the, the material and the delivery system to suit the receptivity of the student. And, and, and you, you work on the strengths and you avoid the weaknesses. And so, well, a talking box can't do that. And so they did much experimentation to see how they could make this the most effective. People from Harvard, people from, from Stanford were, were, were all a part of this. They did a whole bunch of them. I can't tell you about all of them, but I can tell you about just, just one. And, and, and this is quite the point. They did, they did experimentation on the distractibility of children because unless you hold their attention, they really are not going to get the content. And, they were, and, and, and so in one room, they put these, these children uh, uh, watching just the Sesame Street program. And it was, quite, it was quite lively. You know, they have puppets and they have a lot of zings and a lot of color and a lot of, you know, it was quite lively. In the other room, they put students watching the program, but they had a whole, the whole room was full of toys, very attractive toys. Well, predictably, the students in this room, the control group, watched the show 87% of the time, only distracted 13% of the time. In this room, Predictably, the students watched only 47% of the time. But the whole time they were playing with the toys, they just kept looking up. Now, this is the fascinating part. After the program, they tested the students. Both classrooms tested exactly the same. That is, that these students who were playing had the uncanny ability to look up when they understood something and fix it in their minds. Now, what they got from that was this. People don't turn away because they're bored. People turn away because they're confused. People don't need stimulation in order to understand. They need clarity. And so students don't get excited, and when they're excited, they pay attention, and when they're bored, they turn away. They, 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 they pay attention when they're learning, and, and they turn away when they're confused. Adults are the same way. Many people believe that people come here to church. So many people are coming because all the bells and whistles. Well, we like the arts, but we really believe it's because the Word of God is made plain here. It's clear. It's not because of the bells and whistles. It's not, uh, we're not trying to avoid boredom. We're trying to avoid confusion. And so here were these disciples confused, and so they went away. But Mary wasn't looking for content. Mary 
was all about relationship. You know what it's like to love someone so much because they've loved you so much that you just want to be around them no matter what. No one had ever loved Mary like that. They had used Mary. They had not loved her, but Jesus loved her. And so she just wanted to be around Jesus, just be around the body. I love John Calvin. I, he writes his, I, I always read his commentaries on the scripture, but sometimes John just misses the mark. In this passage, he accuses Mary of idle and useless weeping, sticking around the tomb because of her superstition and her old sinful nature. I, I think maybe Calvin was relationally challenged. <laughs> I think he did not understand the heart matters. Mary was there because just being around Jesus could remind her of the love that she used to have. And so it says this, but Mary standing outside the tomb weeping. So as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb and she beheld two angels in white, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, not realizing they were angels. She's crying. She's just looking for Jesus. Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? <laughs> Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Now, these last three verses, they, 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 they copied, uh, I, I told the, the text people I wanted the last three verses in the, in the, in the, in the bulletin, and, uh, and, they, and, the, and the computer went to the last three verses of chapter 19 instead of 20, which is very symbolic, because we have a lot of people who keep going to the cross over and over again, can't quite get to the resurrection, because the resurrection is about the future, and the cross is all about the gift and the past. But read these with me if you have your scripture, and I'll read them to you if you have your bulletin. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. We know exactly what happened. She dove for him. I mean, probably his feet where wrath and mercy meet. She was worshiping him. Why did he allow her to touch him, but not allow her to hold him? Because he knew immediately what she was thinking. She was thinking, good, I've got my Jesus back. Now it's going to be like the good old days. Now I'll be loved like I always was loved. Now we'll do what we always did. And Jesus knew that she was not realizing Things are going to be way different now. We've got a new life. We've got a new intimacy. I've got a new body. And so he said, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. Some of you, are clinging to Jesus so that you can cling to the past.
And this is what he would say to you. Stop it. We're not going there anymore. We're going there. You think you've had a risk in the past? You know there's a whole new life that you and I are going to be living. And I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to be afraid. I want you to take the dive with me. I love John William Smith. He wrote the book, My Mother Played the Piano, and he tells stories about his childhood. And, and he tells a story about a community pool. I'll, I'll close with this. He tells a story about a community pool. Did you all have community pools when you were growing up in your town? We did. We had, a, we had a little town and a community swimming pool. And, of course, they had a diving board, three-foot diving board, and a nine-foot diving board, I think it was. And a three-foot was just looked huge when you were a kid. Just looked way up, blows, nosebleed high, you know? Huge. But and when you when, and then the nine foot, I mean, you went off the nine foot, and and it hurt to go off the nine foot, because it hurt when you hit the water. It did, it did. But John Williams Smith said in his town, they had this pole that shot past that ten foot board they had, and went all the way to like twenty five feet. He said it was just a pole in the concrete. And it just had rungs on the side where you could go up and you could stand on a little bitty platform, maybe one or two feet and eight inches. He said he never saw anybody go off that board. But he said one summer when he and his buddies were hanging out, one of them looked up there and said, before the summer's up, we're all going to go off that board. And of course, being boys, they all said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's what we're going to do. Well, they tried periodically. I mean, one of them would climb up and then would make the mistake of looking down at the water and freeze on the pole. And a lifeguard would have to go up and just unstick him and bring him back down. You know. But John Williams said this. One day, I determined in my mind what I had to do. I had to practice just climbing the pole just so that I could get the feel. Because when I did it, I couldn't think about it. I would have to go up and not stand on that platform deliberating for a moment. Because if I would stand, I would cling. And so one day I did. I made up my mind. And I went up that pole and I got off that I went, I went off that board before my feet hardly touched it. He said, I cannot tell you the exhilaration, nor the pain. <laughs> but I've never regretted it. Some of you need to stop thinking. Remember, Jesus is out there just like he was back there, only better. Pray with me. Lord, thank you that you have not only paid for our sins, but you have paved the way to our future. Thank you that you not only have been close to us in the past, but your intimacy with us will even be more sweet and near in the future because of what you have done after the cross. Thank you that we... Do not have to be afraid. Thank you that we can walk with you in your way. 
Lord, help us not only to honor you with thanksgiving for your payment, but to honor the freedom we have by using it for your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.